expansion of, you know, who knows, a few years down the road, if we get funding for it, as is usual for any nonprofit, as you know, starting a, a workforce development program similar to what we do in Cambodia and India and the U.S. And what we do is our workforce training is not just about like giving a graduation certificate or a skilling certificate, as they call them in India. It's about job placement also. I mean, we are, you know, placing women in jobs or assisting them and starting their own their own micro enterprise. So it is, and, and that is the premise that we work. Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today, I'm excited to have Kelly Gage. Kelly, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I loved meeting you at the Maloof event. I was so inspired by what you were saying on the panel. I tracked you down and wanted to hear more about it. <laughs> For people who aren't familiar, can you talk about Nomi Network? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, to begin with, I am the director of advancement for Nomi Network. We are an anti-trafficking organization with workforce development programs in Cambodia and in India and in Dallas, Texas. We specifically work with women and girls who have either been trafficked or who are at extreme high risk of being trafficked based on a number of different factors and criteria. And we're really approaching, unlike some other organizations, our anti-trafficking work and efforts are really focused around economic empowerment and economic independence. So we have workforce training programs, personal empowerment programs, legal training, other things like that, that really kind of set the women and girls on a path that leads them to their own financial independence. I feel like we have talked about this, but I can't remember. I think what I was so excited about what you guys are doing is I had gone so with with you know, our listeners know about my charity, Child Rescue, Combating Child Trafficking. Mm -hmm. And I had been in Central America, in Nicaragua, staying at an aftercare facility for about 10 days. We'd been doing a, a program supporting local law enforcement on some undercover rescue missions there to get some kids out. But the aftercare work had a bigger impact on me. And I loved this group because it wasn't like in and out in two weeks or something. It was, uh, they're going to stay here until they're better. And they don't graduate from this program until they have a business to leave with. Wow. And they train them, you know, either be a hairdresser, how to run a little store. It's like a common thing down there. It's like the front of your house is a little store. And they say like, they teach them, okay, we teach them how to go buy a 50 gallon, you know, a 50 pound bag of rice and then put it in these little Ziplocs and how to price it to sell like one meal of rice along with the this and that and what sells and what doesn't. Or, you know, they had these kind of, you know, half dozen businesses and they, they had started off with like a free for all of like, hey, whatever business you want to start. And then too many of them failed. And they weren't, they weren't like quite as sophisticated as you guys. They're so like, well, here's five businesses we know will stay in business if we help them. So they pick between that. But, but it was so different to not have the recurrence factor of they actually have a way to stay out because they can yes. feed their families, you know? Right. And I went on this walk. There's this cute little girl, probably like, I don't know how old she was, but she seemed the exact same age as my eight-year-old at the time. Mm -hmm. And her and her mom and these other people asked, invited me to go down to the soccer field with some of the other kids and stuff. And I just remember walking past these places and it's like that like stereotypical, like hut with a tin roof kind of place. And I'm like, yeah. no wonder they're so vulnerable when, when a bunch of gringo dirt bags show up with like $3,000 in their pocket to rent a bunch of kids for the weekend. One of the intelligence police officers we met with, they wore like ski masks so the other cops wouldn't know who they were because there's so much corruption, right? Mm -hmm. She told me how much she makes 
per hour. And I was trying to do the math. And I was like, I think I have this wrong. That's like $2.10 an hour. And they were like, no, that's what she makes. You're like, wow. Oh my gosh. Look at the economic vulnerability for yep. corruption, for exactly. all things, right? Like, so to hear that you guys are like, you've really cracked the nut so much on like helping at scale. And, you know, with my own mother-in-law being trafficked as a 12 year old, and then just all the struggles in the years since then to eventually having a great life. But oh my goodness. I mean, she, she dropped out of the eighth grade to get a job at Pioneer Chicken. Okay. And anyways, there's just so many things that, that did not help her keep jobs in the workforce and and made things harder. She just, she didn't fit in to regular society. And it was really tough on my wife growing up in a lot of ways, you know, and, and to now see her, you know, she's raised a dentist and two business owners and, and gone on to very, a number of aspects of the American dream, you know, 12 grandkids, right. pride and joy. And it, she's just like the biggest testament to me of your past doesn't have to determine your future, mm -hmm. but it'd sure be a lot easier if somebody could give you a hand up or or, you know, give you the tools to feed your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that was really kind of one of the, one of the experiences that was really the impetus between behind the founding of Nomi Network was that one of the co-founders was in Cambodia. She was a graduate student and they're on a microfinance trip, kind of a, an education research trip in a very remote village in Cambodia. And she had been talking to a man who had seven children and he offered his seven-year-old daughter for sale to the male student that was with her. And Diana has the biggest heart in the world. And she just immediately saw that this was an act of desperation by this man. It wasn't, it wasn't about, it, it, it was about taking this desperate chance that he was going to find a better life for his child by, by, by offering her to somebody who was, as you said, a foreigner. And, you know, when you really start digging into the root causes of a lot of trafficking situations, whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking, a lot of it does come down to to finance and to, you know, poverty that is that just creates desperation, whether it's coming from parents or from from, you know, your own your own desperation. And, and you know, of course, there are other reasons that that fold into that and other things that that can definitely factor in. But that is definitely a very, very big part of it is that it is an economic desperation. But, you know, globally, I mean, parents thinking that they're sending their kids off into the city to, you know, yes, have to work in a house, but then also have the opportunity to go for school and just like not having the understanding of what's actually happening. So just out of desperation. And so that was really where when the founders kind of, there were three women that founded Nomi Network when they all came together, it was about creating that that sense of just strength, internal strength for the women that we work with. And this isn't, we, we don't create a specific job path for the women that we work with in any of the, in any of the regions in which we work. But we do move into a community. We have seven program sites in India, two in Cambodia, and then the one in Dallas. And the one in Dallas is, is unique for, for what we're doing right now. We started that last August. But in Cambodia and in India at our program sites, we're really looking at like what are the job sectors that offer opportunity within these regions or even within these towns. So we're not a one-stop shop as far as like one set thing. We do have like in Cambodia, our program site that's in Poipet is very focused on apparel manufacturing because there's opportunity within that. We have other areas that are specific around like the incense industry or 
automotive or other, you know, it really depends on what the opportunity is within that, within that area. And we start off in our first phases of training in our workforce development program, we're specifically focused on that's, it's about an 80, 20 split of like 80% soft skills. So getting at those skills that are necessary, like you said, for your mother-in-law, like that, that make it difficult to maintain employment, things like time management, quality control, interpersonal skills. Yes, some education as far as reading and writing and math and other things like that. But it's also, you know, the concept of being on time to something and like punching a clock and showing up for a shift. If you've never had a job before, that's just not a part of, it's not a part of your wheelhouse. I mean, and I see that in my own teenagers, like, like getting them to show up on time to anything without having somebody else tell them to do it is, it can be challenging. It's, it's cultural, right? You know? Yeah, uh, it is. I, uh, I was on a service mission and the guy I was with 24 hours a day for like six weeks in a row grew up in Tonga and I grew up in Canada and we just, so we, we just had different expectations about how life worked on certain things. Oh, yeah. you know what I mean, right. Mm -hmm. And it's, like nobody thinks it's that big a deal when a Pacific Islander shows up late for stuff. <laughs> but a Canadian? Yeah, watch out. <laughs> you know? And so it, it is like my mother-in-law literally grew up in a different culture. And in many ways, my wife too. Like, you know, she's the first, she's the, the first one in the entire family line to go to college. She, she grew up saying she didn't, the only people she even knew who had gone to college were her school teachers. She didn't know one other person who had even been to college, let alone somebody in her family, right? And so it's been a it's been an interesting thing mashing up our two families. Like, you know, my family is every one of my, I have like 11 aunts and uncles, 10 aunts and uncles on one side, nine on the other. Every one of them with a bachelor's, master's or PhD. And she's the first one in her family to go to school, to go to university, wow. right? And there's just like really fundamental, like this is how it goes and this is what matters. And, and yet on the surface, she she would have completely fit in like people are always shocked to hear about her background because she doesn't she doesn't look like she would have grown up in a different culture she doesn't talk like she she watched the same tv shows whatever right mm -hmm. but you know she was really embarrassed a few times when we were when we were first married of like just like social things that she's like you know she's never been to like just social things that we take for granted that I took for granted growing up in middle income America were were just different. You know what I mean? Like yeah. my my sister, we we were I'm the oldest kid. We were uh we got married and we lived with my mom for my parents for a month before we very responsibly moved to Huntington Beach, California with like thirty dollars to our name. Oh. But uh <laughs> but we we paid for our studio apartment rent for one month already. So we're sure we find a job. Anyways, <laughs> you know, my sisters were like super annoyed when she borrowed their socks too much or like borrowed some of their clothes or things like boundaries. Wow. Boundaries were like a non thing. Like, you know, she I think she'd be fine with me saying this, but like she ended up taking out student loans to buy her mom a car. And like her bank account was her friend's bank account, like like just virtually no boundaries. Right. Well, that's nice when they're the one giving because they have no boundaries, except it's not that healthy for them. But guess what? If you come from like middle income America or upper middle income America and somebody starts using your stuff like it's theirs, but they didn't talk to you about it, that doesn't go over real well. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's but then there's other things of like self-sacrifice of like she would lend stuff to her roommates out of like total sacrifice. And they'd grown up with, you know, wealthier families and just took it for granted and just took her stuff and didn't think. And she's like, she's so hurt that it wasn't reciprocated. And like, this is how this works. You don't you don't care that I'm going to go without 
They're like, oh, no, thanks for lending to me, you know? And yeah. And so uh, I just think there's so many shoulds that those of us who might employ trafficking survivors or people from tough backgrounds just expect without having any education on like the kinds of things that you're helping your clients with. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's one of the things that regardless of where we are in the world or regardless of the age group that we're working with, with Nomi Network, it and even in like program planning, like we have every intention. Our, our program in Dallas is a youth workforce readiness program and we are working with a juvenile detention center in Dallas. Very much in terms of a, a population and working with a juvenile center is is very in within the juvenile justice system is very different from how the group that we're working with in India, but a lot of the same premises as far as workforce readiness and internship opportunities, et cetera. You know, we have every intention of, you know, who knows, a few years down the road, if we get funding for it, as is usual for any nonprofit, as you know, starting a, a work workforce development program similar to what we do in Cambodia and India and the U.S. And what we do is our workforce training is not just about like giving a graduation certificate or a skilling certificate, as they call them in India. It's about job placement also. I mean, we are, you know, placing women in jobs or assisting them and starting their own their own micro enterprise. So it is, and, and that is the premise that we work from, we work from here too. That is kind of a, a, our sweet spot. We have, we're, we're good at, we're good at that in terms of like creating those connections and those opportunities all for the women. And we listen to survivors, whether we are in India, Cambodia, Dallas, if they're, you know, 15 years old or 50 years old. I mean, we are listening to them in terms of, you know, the job opportunities, in terms of the training that we're doing. And even, like I said, with like thinking about like, okay, are we going to start a program, an adult program in the U.S.? Are we not going to start an adult program in the U.S.? We have had probably, I don't know, three or four different roundtables and, and focus groups with survivors and literally just sitting there and listening to them and saying just to that point, your, your point about like what is needed in the workforce. And that's at the stage that we're at right now where we are we are going to employers and really developing a training of like, okay, in order to hire survivors, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And and also looking at employers that are doing a good job. We're actually holding in October in Dallas, we are going to be holding an economic summit specifically focused around the SEC ESG regulations. Uh, and but it's it's gonna be survivor focused and what is really needed in terms of that S from the social perspective of the ESG and really focusing on that. So we're really excited about that because it's kind of like bringing everybody to the table to to have have a bigger discussion about that. You know, I really want to hear about advice for employers who would who would like to help out, who would like to hire people from this population. I feel like I totally threw my wife under the bus with my explanation, right? But you know what's funny is I think about my own arrogance growing up of thinking like that my view is the right view. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we all do that. And like we just had our 20 year anniversary this last month. And I think about my wife and my mother-in-law and how intensely compassionate they are and how, you know, when when life is a lot closer to survival, they're so much more dialed into other humans and and quite frankly, like caring what's going on 
for other humans. Like I, hopefully I wasn't like a hardened person and I cared, but like she has really changed me. She's like stuff like mental health and homelessness and all sorts of things that were just very foreign to me. But, you know, she's always hugging homeless people and like making them feel seen. And like I, I can get stuck in a grocery parking lot for a really long time because <laughs> of how long she'll sit and talk to somebody. And like, it's funny how many people from maybe much wealthier backgrounds are just so completely charmed by my wife because she just so genuinely sees people in life. And I think that my mother-in-law, like she has, she's had all sorts of struggles in overcoming years of PTSD, right? And yet she's one of the least judgmental people I've ever met in my life. And right. she is so willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. And you know what? I think that when I can be more like my mother-in-law, my life gets better. When I stop judging people, I get better. Like right. my, my personal enjoyment of life gets better, not carrying bitterness around or, or that judgmental toxicity, you know? And so I'd love to hear both advice you give advisors and things that employers and things that you think employers can learn from this population. Oh, well, at our summit, we are actually going to, that is one of our, our, our topics that we are going to be covering. So it is like, I think that that, that's just it. This is not, okay, well, first of all, no one wants to feel like they're getting a handout from somebody or that somebody's doing you a favor. Like, I don't, I don't want to step into a job and feel like somebody gave it to me as a favor. I want to know that I earned it and I'm there and I'm contributing. I mean, I don't care who you are. I don't, nobody wants to feel like they're, they're just being given an opportunity as, as a handout. And I think that that's one of the things that is incredibly important is that, and that we've heard, and again, I mean, these are not my words. This is coming from, from our roundtables that we've had in our focus groups is that nobody wants to feel like they're getting a handout. And so they want to be hired because they're, they're needed in that job. And to your point, just what you were talking about with, with your, your wife and your mother is that the employers do have to understand that there are skills that are brought to the table by survivors that are not only going to benefit the employer, but, you know, benefit the entire, the entire group of employees, particularly, I think, around that, the mental health components in terms of just interpersonal skills, conflict negotiation, other things like that. And those are things that, that employers do also have to be aware about and that we, we've heard from people is that it is, there might be things within like conflict or, or interpersonal things that you need to be a little bit more hyper aware of. And it is a two-way street, but there might be something about, um, you know, an interaction. I mean, the way, just a hyper a hypersensitivity to the way somebody looks at them. I mean, just like like the, having some thought about like, okay, what are those those nonverbal cues that are being given off that could be be really disconcerting to somebody who is a survivor? You know, we actually in our team meeting, to somebody mentioned that how you know, like sexual harassment training can be it's pretty much standard operating procedure at most companies, even big or small. That can be really traumatizing to anyone that has been been a victim of any type of sexual assault. So, you know, it's things like that, like just setting up setting up guidelines with that. And that is something that we are because of particularly now moving into the space in the U.S. that we are taking a really hard line look at and creating opportunities for employers to literally be educated by us 
we're not just educating the survivors, but it's also educating the employers. And like, this is what you have to do in order to be a successful workplace. You know, it's interesting what a potential positive it can be for a company too. Like, Absolutely. This is not a good analogy, but but it has some similarities. We, we have we have an MBA intern right now who he had a previous career and then decided he wanted to do something different. And, and so went back to school for finance, right? And he's deaf. And we're a completely remote company. Like we run this whole company off of Zoom calls and Google wow. Drive and stuff, right? Yeah. And, you know, it was my first time. It was my first time having a phone call with somebody who is on Zoom, signing with him, talking for him, but it's a woman's voice, but she's just <laughs> saying his words. And like each one of us on the team, that's like, well, that was different. You know what I mean? <laughs> and there's delays and there's stuff. But what's interesting, I think is going to be a huge benefit is like he is, he is extra excited to have the opportunity where I think some of the other finance interns we've had are like, oh yeah, this will look good on my resume. They don't, they don't feel like we did him this huge favor, you know, yeah. where he's like bringing extra enthusiasm. And I think that, you know, like, I think that it will make some of our communications less efficient. I think that there'll be adjustments on the team to working together. And I think that like, I think there'll be other things that we wouldn't have been able to get from anybody else that he'll bring. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that is, that is also, you have to, I mean, I speak about, I, I think about this from a, both a personal and just even when you're thinking about an employment perspective, you really do have to keep an open mind also and be willing to be willing to listen and be willing to, you know, I think you said like, you don't, you don't really recognize your own limitations and scope of your, your frame of reference until you're presented with something that is outside of what your norm is. I mean, you, you wouldn't be thinking about how you communicate within your team meetings and how difficult it could be for somebody who has, who's deaf until you're presented with it. And you're like, oh yeah, I should have been thinking about that all along. Not that you need to have somebody who is signing in your meetings when, when it's not needed, but it's like, you, you should be, you should be thinking about those things. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us one of your favorite success stories from Nomi? Oh, wow. Yeah, we have so many great stories. I think one of the really special things about our programming and that I really love exhibited throughout our training in India in particular is the fact that very early on within the first few years of launching the program, it launched in, in Cambodia in 2009 and in India in 2010 and, or excuse me, 2012. And one of the things that we did early on was that we identified a group of women that were going through the training that showed a really, really high propensity for leading and training on their own. And through that, we created this train, we call it our train the trainer program. So these are women who are from the community that then become trainers and master trainers. And they go around and they actually help us train new trainers and help us open new sites. And I had the opportunity to speak to two different women. One is Reno. She was in our one of our early cohorts and she is a master trainer. And she actually, I talked to another trainer, a younger woman who told me that the reason she joined our programming because she saw Renu, who was who she literally said, I saw that she was who I was at that time and I wanted to become like her. She saw her as a success. So that was like, it was somebody within their community that they saw had gone through our training and, and, and risen up into a place of leadership and that that's what, that's what she wanted. And to me, that is what it's all about. I mean, there are a lot of stories about like women starting their own business, chicken farming, 
farming and mushroom farming and other things like that. But that to me is putting it back into the communities that this is, yeah, this is our training. And I'm sitting here in the U.S. doing the fundraising aspect of it. But it's the women that are on the ground and the people that are on the ground and and trainees that we've had that become trainers that are really kind of the breaking the cycle on the ground, which is which is and what what it what it's really all about, honestly. And, so and tell me her name again. She's in Reno, and she, we work in northeastern northeastern India. We work in Bihar, West Bengal, and Odessa. And and what are the industries there that she's helping? You know that that more of the clients are going to there that she's helping. Um, apparel manufacturing is still a big thing. We have a really strong partnership with a large apparel manufacturer in India. And building out other strong partnerships like that that are literally direct conduits to these these jobs. Other industries are automotive, the the like sales, like showrooms, text textile showrooms. Beautician is one. We have women who have started tea stands, their own their own tailoring businesses, other things like that. So it really runs the gamut of women who start their own small businesses to work in local enterprises to working in these larger, you know, more globally connected companies. And really depending on what is what is what is the interest of the women. You know, my wife talks all the time about how come nobody saw her grandma? How many how come nobody saw her great grandma? Mm-hmm. You know, her her like the kind of things that happened to her mom, you know, like where was child services? Where was the community? Like how did this how could this keep happening to a kid? Mm-hmm. You know? And to me, like the multi-generational probabilities that happen yes. when there isn't something to drastically break that chain of the mm-hmm. cycle. You know, it's it's just so encouraging what you guys are doing because not only, you know, not only are you helping that individual so much, the generations afterwards, like, so I'm the first dad I'm the first dad to stick around in 100 years in that family line, right? And my daughters are have such a completely different life than their grandma, right? And yeah. it's because she broke the cycle. She's like, this is never going to happen to my kids. And quite frankly, like some of the abusive men that are around, I think they they didn't abuse my wife because they feared for their life <laughs> because of my mother-in-law. <laughs> Because of my mother. Yeah. Right. And but but like, why did it take four generations for that cycle to break where you guys, you know, in family after family are setting up generations yeah. of a different life? I mean, prevention is so much more efficient than than aftercare. And like we need to do aftercare for those people who, who absolutely the society we've let down for. But the absolute best thing we can do for their children and their children's children is mm-hmm. what you guys are doing of giving them an economic exit. Right. And we are, I mean, there are, we have a lot of stories within the women that we work with in India and Cambodia that it is, we are the first step in breaking that multi-generational cycle. Really, I mean, just, just tragically, it, it really, yeah, I mean, just, just generations that, that have gone through the cycle and there are, there are, you know, a whole myriad of reasons of cultural reasons or, or economic reasons that are, that kind of build out that cycle. And it is, it is something that we see definite changes in terms of even the children, the children of our trainees being sent to school, like boys and girls. And one of the reasons we started our adolescent girls program in India was because we did see these young girls coming to our training sites and basically hanging around with them, their moms waiting as their moms did the training. And that's where we you know, looked at that and thought, OK, well, we need to take it even a step further and that we are putting parameters in place or a thought processes in place, not just for the moms, but also for the children, daughters 
for them to create, to know their rights, to know what they can fight against, you know, et cetera. And our adolescent girls program is exactly that. It's actually the the full title of it is adolescent girls empowerment program. We simply call it AGEP, but that is, that is really it is that we are, we are really training the girls to, to know their rights, to stay in school, to plan for a future that they may not have otherwise had. And similar to that, we took that premise and that's where we're working in Dallas and working with the girls who are, they're in the juvenile detention center. It is a rehabilitative center that we're working with in the Dallas County juvenile justice system and really creating these, these opportunities. I mean, we're not, we're not going in with feeling like we're the be all end all we're solving every single problem, but we are opening up their opportunities. Just like you said, like your wife didn't know anybody else that went to college. I mean, that that's where we're coming in, in both India and in Dallas, working with this younger, these younger cohorts of girls is that, you know, we want them to see a different path forward and helping them understand what the steps are that need to be taken for that path. So we have, we've only been working in Dallas since last August. We just graduated our third cohort of girls. We have three girls that are doing internships at a major multinational company this summer that we're partnering with. And that these are professional opportunities for them to move into the workforce. We're working with girls that are 15 to 17. So there's only a small portion of the cohort that can actually, that are old enough to hold an internship, but it is, yeah, I mean, we're super excited about that. And even just like within, within our programming there, one of the things that we do is hold panel presentations of professional women who may have similar stories to where these girls came from, either coming through the foster care system or coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. And they can see, again, they can see themselves in this and say, wow, there, there is a future forward. Like I can, if she did this, I can do this. And it's, you know, we've had AT&T, Toyota, Southwest Airlines, Goldman Sachs, Pimco, like all of these big companies come in and talk to these girls to the point that they, they are being opened up. And this is, this is them expressing, this isn't, this is not like, oh, we're coming in and giving them these opportunities. They're literally saying, I had no idea that I could be doing this. And now I want to be a pilot. I want to be a flight attendant. I want to, you know, I want to go into construction. It's, it's like, it's, it's really cool. I mean, not I'm big, I mean, just personally, and my background is actually prior to joining the Nomi Network team, I was in education. So, and I worked at an all women's university. So I, I kind of have that, that vein in me too, that I'm just like, yeah, I want to build you up and I want you to find your dream. And I want you to <laughs> be able to achieve what you want to achieve. So I get really excited about that stuff. So I think this is a great place to end for part one. Tell people where are the best places if they want to donate. Uh, definitely getting under our website, nominetwork.org. There are, you know, a couple of very prominent dominant donate buttons on there. So definitely, definitely do that. And obviously, I think on there, you can also like click through and contact me also. So there, there's that opportunity too within there. But Nomi Network, it's N-O-M-I network.org. And then if people want to connect with you, is LinkedIn best or what's best? Yeah, look me up on LinkedIn. Again, Nomi Network. Kelly Gage. I don't think there are many of us on there, so you should be able to find me pretty easily. Great. Well, congratulations on all the success. You guys are doing something that's so important. Awesome. Okay, folks, this is the end of part one. Please tune in for part two. I've got so many more questions for Kelly. <laughs> Bye now. <laughs> 